The Major Spoilers Podcast is sponsored in part by Megacon, February 27th to March 1st in Orlando, Florida. For more information, visit megaconvention.com. The Major Spoilers Podcast covers news, reviews, and of course spoilers, and we will go into detail about the topics we discuss. So if you haven't read, listened to, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. My name's Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. This week in spoilers, Black Lantern's revealed and people ain't happy. Sexy, sexy lizard girls on parade. Phil Sheldon loses an eye, but the fun and games ain't over yet. Plus, is a robot hottie a robot Does sleeping with your alternate universe's girlfriend count as cheating? And what was the name of the cartoon cat with the garbage can on his head? All this and much more from the elegant spoilers ballroom, adjacent to the lovely pump room high above Chicago, asking that musical question, is the Major Spoilers podcast on the air? Dun, dun, dun! Happy Lunar New Year. Chinese New Year, everybody. The Year of the Ox. As we kick off our 75th Major Spoilers episode. Can you believe that? 75 episodes in less than a year? Wow. Yeah. Because we are awesome. We're major spoilers. I, I, think la, it's, la, la. Oh, never I mind. think it's because we don't know how to shut the hell up. Well, there is that. <laughs> hey, I've so, been so, listening to the last couple of weeks worth of podcasts, and I noticed that I sound really, really strident and obnoxious. So I'd like to apologize to all of you who listen every week. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think we've had a breakthrough. <laughs> hey, a lot of big so. <laughs> a lot of big news going on in and around the interwebs, most of it landing on the Majorspoilers.com website. One of the ones, if you paid careful attention to the uh, solicitation information and images that came out from DC Comics last week that is appearing, I think, in what, this week's previews, Matthew? Has it come it out be, this week? The, yeah, the previews come out the last week of the month, so it would be roughly Wednesday, I think. Yeah. Today, tomorrow... Last week, depending on uh, when you're listening. Hello, future people. But uh, DC Comics, and we had it up on the site last week, uh, they had in their direct toys section, they had a listing that said, hey, here are some uh, Blackest Night Black Lantern figures that you might want to be aware of. (laughs) And they conveniently blocked out one of the Black Lanterns. Of course, if you read the actual text that goes with it, it says... Cal L of Earth 2 is, is uh, the first Black Lantern to be revealed. And then a day or so later, sure enough, the next Black Lantern is revealed in another solicitation page from somewhere else that says the next Black Lantern will be the Martian Manhunter. Now, Matthew, you're not too happy about this. I am seriously irked. First, well... Okay, uh, this yeah. is the thing. I mean, it's, they're just bringing back dead people. So if you're going to bring back somebody that's a powerhouse, you've got to bring back Superman. I mean, well, it wouldn't surprise me if they bring back uh, uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne. <laughs> What's she going to do? Throw her pearls at somebody? Yeah, that's it. Puking <laughs> blood on people? Is that a... Uh... Well, that's the Red Lanterns. And, right. Yeah. Uh, the Black poor, Lanterns, poor I think, just, just sort of stand there and kind of decompose. Yeah. Nice. Uh, my this frustration is... with being Cal-El of Earth 2 is, yeah, it's a big shocking reveal... And it's the kind of thing that goes, oh, my gosh, that's, you know, that's, for all intents and purposes, the original Superman, the Superman who started. How shocking, how weird. And what is it, five months until the actual issues come out and now this is public knowledge? Yes, we are major spoilers. And we don't have a problem with spoiling things. 
And I, I haven't spoiled anything. That's DC that did but, that. <laughs> exactly. And the people at DC, or in this case, the people at, I think it's DC Direct. Yeah. The, the toy division kind of dropped a huge ball on this because that's the kind of thing that you get to the end of, you know, you get to the end of the first issue and the body of Kal-El stands up and brains. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a super brains. That's a a nard (laughs) shot right there. And they gave it up in toy solicitations, which that sucks. That's gotta be a big, that's gotta be a big old uh, matzo ball hanging there. Matt, yeah, somebody at somebody at DC or DC Direct just kind of got you know kicked in the nards because it's not it's somebody got fired for this I'm sure. Well, I'll talk about firings here in a moment. Uh, Rodrigo, any thoughts on Martian Manhunter Uh-oh. or Cal L <laughs> being uh, revealed as the Black Lanterns? Well, I just I just think it's funny, and you know I, I, maybe I'm just the only person who doesn't uh, care, <laughs> isn't really surprised by this. You know, when they killed the Martian Manhunter. People were like, oh, you can't kill the Martian Manhunter. How could you do this? How could you kill him so easily? I'm like, dude, he's going to be back in like 10 minutes. And sure enough, 10 minutes later, a toy solicitation told me that he was back. Now, what about uh, Bart Allen or uh, Max Mercury or or not Jake Garrick, although he's pretty much the living dead? Uh, What about them becoming Black Lanterns? (laughs) I mean, are we just going to see... Jake Garrick is only 93 years old. (laughs) Are we going to see all of our beloved dead... Heroes come back to the dead, dip back from the dead to wreak havoc across the DC universe. Is this going to be if DC's starting, answer, answer to Marvel Zombies? If they're starting be. with Superman, they then, might be. I mean, and think then, of it this so way. Who Superman. else would they bring back? Batman, then. Batman just died, didn't he? Why don't bring him back? Why don't they? I mean, it would fit. Dun, didn't, dun, one, dun. didn't Wonder Woman get off in uh, this past issue of Final Crisis when uh, Superman came booming through the city and, and she said, look up in the sky, and he devastated everything? Maybe she's coming back. Maybe all those people in the haunted tank finally have something to do. Awesome, the haunted <laughs> tank. <laughs> Listen, Sergeant this is, Rock. This is a terrible time. This is a terrible economy time, and it's finally affecting some of our big uh, companies, and some of our smaller companies. And i got to tell you, it is messing up what we're trying to do with major spoilers. All of these PR people, these great people at all of these companies from uh, DC to uh, uh, Lucasfilm to you know some of our other friends are just being let go left and right. Uh, Mel, Mel from uh, 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 Top Cow was let go this uh, past week or two weeks ago. It's wow, terrible. Man. To see all these great marketing people and publicity people and, and PR people just being tossed out the window. So there's only one way to fix this, people. Get out there and buy some comic books. Problem is, are there any good comic books to be bought? Mm, that's deep, Ogre. It seems like everything that we're doing in, in comics these days or in television or in movies just seems to be regurgitating, in the case of the Red Lanterns, literally, uh, regurgitating old stuff. For example, take a take a look at Tom and Jerry. They're coming back to the big screen in an all CGI movie. Or I think it's CGI and live action. Hmm. Live action. Yeah, you know, kind of like uh, crap on top of crap. <laughs> See, this is. <laughs> you can tell I'm in the mood that's tonight. That's awful. Yeah, a little bit. That is awful. Awesome. You know that movie? Oh, what was that movie? Cats and Dogs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um. 
I remember being somewhat excited about that movie because I thought, you know, this is this is interesting. I'd never really seen this kind of thing before. And I remember thinking, like, being really thrown off by the fact that it had very cartoony violence, but the animals were very realistic. So it really yeah. looked like, you know, a dog hit a wall at, you know, 20 miles an hour. And you expect that dog to die. And then he just kind of gets up and he's like, oh, guys, I'm okay. And it's just, it's very disconcerting. Really? Have you, did you mm. guys, I mean, uh, Rodrigo, you probably saw some, you've seen some of the original uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons, am I correct? Yeah. yeah. Or are uh-huh. you, have you seen those ones that were done in the 80s where everything was all saccharine and instead of fighting, they, they kind of trip each other or. And they well, were I've, little I've seen. Yeah. I, I've Whoa. seen. Whoa. Yeah, I've seen both. Um, of course, I'm a I'm a much bigger fan of the ones that are just out and out violence. Yes, exactly. The kind where your face gets blown off with a firecracker and you get your butt whipped with a big old wooden bat with a nail through it, or you run into the wall and you turn into an accordion. That's the kind of Tom and Jerry I want to see. And if they're going to take this movie and turn it into, oh Tom, I love you, I love you too, Jerry. <laughs> we got to get home. Then this is going to be a movie that's going to suck. I would agree. The whole point of Tom and Cherry is that they don't care for each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're a cat the, and a mouse. The vast majority of their stories are fighting. Yeah. Tom's trying to beat him up. And even when they when they do that thing where for some reason they exist in the 5th century or they're, Jerry's a French musketeer, <laughs> yeah. they're still trying to kick each other's butts. <laughs> the only time it's effective and entertaining for them to work together is when there's a third force that they have to unite against, like Spike the dog. Right. My daughter and I watch these. I actually, we, we DVR Tom and Jerry so she can watch them whenever Off the she... boomerang? Yeah. And we will watch them, and it'll get to the point where she's like, oh, is this the one? The one with the chalkboard? I'm like, yes, honey, it's the one with the chalkboard. I love this one most of all. And then the next one, oh, is this the one? Yes, honey, this is the one that comes after the one with it. That's my very favoritist. But <laughs> the violence, she you know, she understands and it's cartoon poor. violence. Yeah, it's cartoon violence. It's not really people hitting. And it would hurt if you actually hit somebody. And yes. I think she understands that. The 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 frustration comes when if you're doing live action, the Garfield movie was god awful. Yes, it was. Uh, the and Alvin and the Chipmunks movie, though, I got to admit, I saw it on uh, cable. I was flipping through the channels, and it was on HBO or Cinemax over the holiday break. And I sat and I watched, I think, uh, the last 45 minutes of it. It wasn't too bad. Yes, it was cheesy, but it really wasn't wasn't. terrible. The, that hissing sound is the last shreds of Jason Lee's street cred just <laughs> <laughs> off into the world. But that, that, that was it, it was still an awful movie. Yeah, it was, and but it wasn't that Underdog bad. was 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 kind of an awful movie. Yeah. And uh, the, the uh, live-action Bullwinkle and Rocky and Bullwinkle movie was a god-awful movie. You know, you keep, <laughs> going, you keep going back, Matthew. You know what this movie really needs if it's going to succeed? This? First of all, it needs to remove all the political correctness that ruined cartoons in the uh, in the 60s and the 70s, number okay. one. Second thing that they need to do is they need to sit everybody down and say, uh, today, gentlemen, we're going to watch a movie called Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Take notes and pay attention. Tom and Jerry mm-hmm. shouldn't be a G-rated movie, in my opinion. Tom and Jerry should not be as adult-oriented as Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, come but on. I, Tom no. dancing around and p- putting a dress on his hand and dancing around to get Jerry to come out of the hole? Come on, you don't tell me that's not adult? 
That's not adult. What they need to do is they need to look at the Chuck Jones, uh, the Chuck Jones, Tom and Jerry cartoons from the 60s, yeah. which even now are very modern and very avant-garde, but they're still cartoons and they're still done as cartoons. There's even uh, there's a whole bunch of Tom and Jerry cartoons that were done in like the mid 50s by a I want to say a Czechoslovakian art oh, house. Oh man, those are so weird. Aren't they though? They are but trippy th- weird. They're so they're like meta textual. There's one where they're they're advertising the Tom and Jerry cartoon kit and yeah. you get a box with a mouse and a cat and a hammer and various implements of destruction <laughs> and coffee and cigarettes. And <laughs> the coffee and cigarettes are for the animators. Yeah. And then they go on and they explain how to make a Tom and Jerry cartoon and they, the little cartoon mouse and the cartoon cat fight. And it's such a weird, it, I mean, it's such a modern deconstructionist it, statement. It needs to be written. Like 19- not written in Stimpy. What, uh, uh, what are the cat and mouse on uh, The Simpsons? Itchy and Scratchy. Itchy and Scratchy. That's what this movie needs. Itchy and Scratchy. Forget Tom and Jerry, Itchy and Scratchy. Now, I would go for a, a live-action Itchy and Scratchy as long as it had Poochie. <laughs> nice. Hey, hey I'm Poochie D! <laughs> as long they as fight. Poochie got they eviscerated fight. every, they like, fight. ten fight. minutes and of the movie. And bark. And fight. And fight. And bark. Fight, fight, fight. Bark, bark, bark. Uh, let's transition from uh, the cat and the mouse to space reptile Nazis that want to eat our faces off. Yes, oh. let us transition in that direction. <laughs> that is simply one of the best transitions ever. That is, <laughs> that is why I did this thing called signaling, letting you know where we're going. Uh, Seg- 2000. Rodrigo, you were not born when this TV series first began. I have, in fact, never heard of it. You've never heard of V? Oh, my never God. This was it. the greatest thing in the world. Suddenly, imagine oh. you're in 1983, and Wait, suddenly spaceships... Spaceships appear all the way around the Earth, and the spaceships come down, and the people come out, and they're wearing red uniforms with a symbol that kind of looks like a Nazi symbol, but isn't really a Nazi symbol, and they have to wear these. They're very sexy and beautiful people, and they have to wear these sunglasses because, you know, in the 80s, it was all about sunglasses, and they're all peace and love and happiness, and we just need some water for our world, and then all of a sudden, we can help you out if you'll just let us do these few things for, for you, and... And all of a sudden, hey, there are some people that are undesirables in your community. And I think in the original series, Matthew, there were they were some Jewish people, right? That they were rounding in, up. In well, yes and no. It, at the end of the last episode of the first mini series, uh, one of the characters who was, I believe, the grandfather, who yeah, had was, been, either been in a concentration camp. I think that's camp, what it was. Or had a family member who'd been in a concentration camp. <laughs> the whole V symbol was V for victory. The right. kids were. There were a bunch of kids who were um, ruining some sort of political posters. The visitors are your friends. And he took the can and he put a big red V on it and said V for victory. Right. So it was definitely an overtone. It didn't flat come out and have the aliens rounding up the Jewish people. It was something like that because you know what happens next, Rodrigo? Some people sneak into the spaceship behind the scenes and they Mm -hmm. see the head sexy lady who's really not that sexy in hindsight. Diana. Eat a live rat. You shut your mouth. You Eat a live rat. <laughs> and then, to make things even better, Robert England, you know, Freddy Krueger, who yeah. nobody knew who Robert England was at the time, but he was in this series too. And all of a sudden there's a fight, and the good guy reaches up to the, to the, to the visitor's face and twists it, and the face comes off, and underneath are reptile aliens. Oh, ah, it's a cookbook. 
curse you, Mrs. Fridley. And they were actually taking people and using them for food. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and they and were that, stealing all the water. And they were stealing all the water. And that was the basis of the V miniseries, which became a second miniseries where a woman gave birth to a reptile alien. Oh, uh, twins, actually. And, and there was an ongoing series. Which delayed. lasted one one season. Like 18 episodes. Yeah. You, you should totally try and Netflix it or something, Robert. I, I bet no, it's up there on Hulu or Juiced or something. Yeah, but, we uh, shouldn't use necessarily brand names. You should attempt to legally obtain a digital copy. Oh, well, okay. Well, Hulu and Juiced are, are legal copies. There you have it. Uh, probably <laughs> Hulu because, you know, the series, you probably will find it on Hulu because Hulu is owned by NBC and NBC is the one that did the original series. But now ABC, the rivals to NBC, the ones that just got scrubs from NBC, uh, uh-huh. have given the green light to resurrect the V series and bring it back. Now, Rodrigo, never having seen the greatness that was the 1980s V series, I'm going to send this over to Matthew for his thoughts on on this uh, craptacular news. Understandable. I, I believe at this point I'm going to have to use the words of the great philosopher Dan Aykroyd and paraphrase by saying, Rodrigo, you ignorant slut. <laughs> you, uh, See, even he, this show succumbs to digging up old stuff. And trying to regurgitate it and make it great again. The problem that I have here is I have I have a dichotomy in my head. Okay. Um, on the one hand, I'm going, oh, this is going to suck. How dare they mine my childhood again? Oh, oh, my childhood had it coming. Whatever. You know, but on the other hand, V was awesome. It was. That first v series was very, was very, very cool. very cool and very futuristic and very, you know, I, I want to see what they do with it simply because... I liked it, and even if they ruin it, it's going to bring the original series back into you know, the forefront. There was also a DC Comics version of V, which I think ran about 20 issues. Oh, really? Yeah, drawn by Carmine Infantino, which is a weird, weird choice. Because uh, Carmine's art by the 80s was very stylized anyway, so none of the characters were recognizable. From you know page to page, yeah, and he was he was doing his Carmine thing, and it was beautiful to look at. But you know, like the the designs of their little ships, mm-hmm. he wasn't really working for models; he was just being Carmine. So I mean, the series didn't necessarily go very far. I just, but I do remember there being at, at least like twenty or twenty three issues. I just think that you know we've had the X Files, we've had the forty four hundred, we have. I don't know. We have what are some other series that are? I mean, we've got Stargate SG One, we've got mm-hmm. Star Fringe. Trek, we've got Fringe, we've got all these things that kind of hint around aliens among us. To where you know, in '83, V was kind of a radically new retelling of of a Twilight Zone series. That is exactly what it was. V had a very Rod Serling, O. Henry kind of motif going right. on, where one thing is happening. But that thing is actually a metaphor for other things happening, right? Like the, the and it has kind of a sci-fi really a twist, you know. It, it is, yeah. The, the near future with the sci-fi twist, but really, it's talking about us, right? And how easily, you know, how easily the kids succumb to becoming members of the little—I don't want to use the term Hitler Youth, but I can't think of a better way to put it—the the, the visitors yeah. team, lizard youth. Yeah. Well, the you know, they did. Did they? Did they were wearing uniforms and everything that yeah. was and they very were, much like Hitler? They were encouraged to seek out people who were unmutual and, and you know, yep. essentially lynch them. Yep. And spy on you know, your mom it, and dad, kids. It was. It was a very sort of. It, 
it took you know themes of fascism and themes of separatism and themes of alienation no pun intended and threw it all <laughs> together and then you know flipped this sci-fi twist on it and i'm sure rod serling was sitting there going i i thought of that yeah I just, 1959, the monsters are due on Maple Street. What the hell is wrong with you people? <laughs> That's what Rod says. Yeah. I think it's the, uh, you know, the um, copyright violation. <laughs> I really don't think that this series is going to fly. It really depends on how they, how they do it. They're going to have to do it so far above and beyond. I mean, even Battlestar Galactica, when it first came out, the new one, I thought that this show was going to suck. And it's actually a really good show. But V, I mean, come on. Well, the original V was probably a better show than the original Battlestar Galactica. It was. Yeah. I will give you that. Because, let, let me, except for Daggett. You, you can't get enough Daggett. <laughs> how, how close to the original Battlestar Galactica is the new Battlestar Galactica? Oh, man. You've got Apollo. Not so very much. You've got Starbuck. You've got. Right. You don't so have you've got Daggett. names, basically. I think some they're trying to go to some... Earth. They're trying to find Earth. The Cylons there are, are pursuing them. There are design elements in the ships and the, the Cylons that are similar, but yeah. no, it bears it's very diff- little. It's a, yeah, it is totally not the same show. So they'll probably do the same thing. I mean, really, what they probably would want to do is try to figure out what the you know general senses of this generation and try to write a sci-fi show about it. Okay, Matthew pointed out that the previous series, the first V series, had the kids trying to be, you know, succumbing to society and norms and be mindful of these people wearing red, maybe red for communism. Here is how they're going to describe the new series. The new V centers on Erica Evans, a homeland security agent with an aimless son. When the aliens arrive, her son gloms onto them, causing tension within the family. Mm. Welcome, it's E.T. meets One Tree Hill. (laughs) Dawson's Saucer Um, (laughs) I I still want to see it because to do it in my mind successfully what would be awesome would be is if they maintained all of the 80s retro elements of the alien culture in a modern setting because the aliens whatever they've learned about us may come from we had Alien Nation well Alien Nation was good but it came after V true it also came after the monsters are due on Maple Street, 1959. <laughs> Cayuga Productions aired on CBS. Not mentioning any names called Rod Serling did it first. All right, everybody. Talking about some people who did it first. Uh, let's talk about some reviews. Reviews. Let's go. Do, 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 Matthew, do. if you guys haven't been paying attention to the site, you may have noticed Matthew's productivity on the site dropping way off. And that is because <laughs> this computer that he has. This computer that he has is just yeah. a piece of crap and is well, breaking down on him re- left and right. And I gave it to him. Here's, here's <laughs> what happened. I, I had a scanner. Yes. I was doing hero history week yes. after week after week oh, after week. you were week. cranking them out. And the scanner went kablamicus. Kab- damn technology. So I tried to load new drivers and the scanner and the drivers and the laptop, they all seem to, to speak the same language. But uh, much like uh, the people on the Tower of Babel, it just kind of went bahamana. So I gave up on that for just a minute. While I was trying to find a scanner driver that worked, the monitor went out on the laptop. I can't believe that. Now, I, I want you to know there is nothing. The only thing more useless than a laptop with a broken monitor laptop is with a, broken keyboard. a manager in a call center in the Midwest. <laughs> 
Neither here nor there. So I've actually got a 52-pound monitor <laughs> from like 1987 hooked up to my ultra sleek thin laptop yeah my all, wife all my wife is actually thing. giving me the finger right now because she's the smart one who figured out that she could just plug another monitor in and i'd be able to access my information there you having go. done that i went i got a new scanner was gonna you know put the drivers in and I, it said i didn't have enough room so i did a defrag which somehow took out a system file to where i lost my my operating system I had to load a secondary operating system on the secondary drive. So here's, here's the good part. The operating system that I launched allowed me to open the computer, but everything that I used is, is sort of in this, this, this dormant state. It recognizes that things like, oh, I don't know, my editing program that I use, no, no names but rhymes with Blotopop, Oh yeah, I love that program. And 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 the the system that I'm using right now to communicate with you over the internet, which rhymes with flype, all of these programs exist, but it cannot or will not access them because X. Well, I don't want to say the name, so we're going to say Flindos Max V <laughs> has one version that knows where it is, and then there's a second version that doesn't know where it is. So, long story short, too late. I ha- I am basically running my computer like hubcaps on a tractor right now, but and that's that's why he hasn't done reviews and why he's so backed up with really well, great content that he wants to share with us. Precisely, and one of the things that I found actually by my bedside, and I realized I bought this nearly three weeks ago now. I think yeah, January second. Yep, Mark Miller, the latest, and by latest I mean last issue of Kickass from uh, Icon. Whoopsh. Uh, number five, this series this, has this been is fascinating. I, this is Marvel. Is it the Icon, Icon. imprint of Marvel? Uh, Icon, I believe, is a creator-owned imprint owned and distributed by Marvel. Ah, okay. Meaning that it's not actually a Marvel title, but it is an imprint by Marvel because I believe, yes, Kick-Ass is owned by Miller and Romita. Okay, cool. So the creators actually own this book. Of course, Kick-Ass is the story of Dave Lazuski, who is a teenager who got bored, bought a wetsuit, and became a superhero, and accidentally became an international phenomenon. So by... Yes, go ahead. I was going to say, this is this has been a great series so far. I think I've read the first three issues. I haven't read four or five yet, so I'm even further behind than you are. Yeah. But the first three issues have such a slow buildup. I can't imagine what happens in four, so five must be just like kick ass. Five is actually pretty fascinating. Uh, throughout the first four issues, Dave, as kick ass, has had his ass kicked, kicked a few asses, been ass kicking, but he's also inspired a slew of imitators. One of those imitators, a kid called the Red Mist, which is a really funny name has actually become more popular than he is. So this issue starts with Kick-Ass dealing with the fact that he's no longer number one. The Red Mist is actually more popular than he is. So he ends up going to his comic store and, you know, finding a shirt that says, The Red Mist is greater than Kick-Ass. And everybody loves him, so he decides he needs to go out and find something to make himself popular again. Uh, He finds a couple uh, having sex on the hood of a car. That doesn't really do much. And he eventually ends up, he finds the Red Mist. Okay. And he attacks, he he attacks him verbally. This is, you know, not as comic booky as it is. And the Red Mist is like, dude, you're my idol. So they decide to have a team up. All right, a team up issue. 
Yeah, but the Red Mist apparently has tons of money because he has a big red Mustang and he has all sorts of equipment and some sort of uh, sandwich, I think, which is a euphemism for illicit substances if you watch How I Met Your Mother. Uh, but uh, in their team-up, they end up cruising around the city in the Red Mist Mustang, listening to music, talking about comic books, and accidentally fighting crime. They uh, come upon a fire, and the two of them go in. They're completely out of their element. There's, there's no way that they should even be in here. They think they're saving a child. They end up saving a kitty <laughs> from death in this fire. But in so doing, they went nationwide, which means two superheroes, twice as much stuff, all the na the major news stories pick it up. It's all over the Intar web. At one point, Kickass says two million hits on Google, a hundred thousand friends on his MySpace, and of course, the criminal element has started picking up to the fact that these are just a couple of kids. Yeah. And at the end of the issue, from the previous issues, I think you remember. I think they're Big Daddy and Hit Girl. Right. The actual... The little you know, samurai the actually, girl that's chopping the crap out of people. They show up in Dave's bedroom, in his home, while he's unmasked. And they're like, hey, you saved a cat. Let's see how you do against the mob. The hoo-hoo. Now, they scare me. Big Daddy scares they me. Do. Because he's got like an eight-year-old, presumably his eight-year-old daughter, dressed up in a costume, running around and killing people with swords. And as a parent, i got to tell you, that's not an activity you want to do any time before 12. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Molly says she wants a gun, and I tell her not tell your 12, honey. <laughs> because I loved Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> but overall, this issue is very interesting, and it casts a new, a, kind of a new light on superhero team-ups. At one point, Kick-Ass is like, I never realized before, but the reason superheroes team up is so they don't feel like such an asshole wandering around is the only one in the costume. Yeah. But, you know, it's an interesting issue. It's it it it's taking everything that we know and it's it's building the tension about you know something bad is going to happen. You just know it. Oh, when yeah. the first you know, the first issue ended with him being beaten oh, nearly yeah, to, to a bloody, death. bloody pulp laying in the middle yeah. of the street and left in the street with two broken legs bleeding out the, I mean this series is well and, and people it's always bloody. say that Watchmen was realistic superheroes and up to a point it was this is what an actual superhero in the real world would be like right now he's an internet cultural phenomenon but I know and I think we can all see the shift coming to the point where he's going to get the snot kicked out of him. But this is the last issue, right? No. Oh, it's not. Oh, I thought you said it was the last issue. No, this is the last the issue. Oh, okay. All the right. last that issue. Makes that makes sense. Was... Hey, who's on first? Uh, third base. <laughs> oh, I see the confusion. You see, our first baseman's name is who? His mother was Chinese. And our second baseman is Watt, and that's not a strange name because James Watt invented the steam engine. And our third baseman's name is I don't know, Phil I don't know. But I know if you say it really fast, it sounds a little bit like I don't know. So that's where I, our confusion I'm a lies. Vaudevillian. This is an ongoing series, then, or is there an end? Is this something like Wanted? Is this something like um, uh, I don't know other Mark Miller projects? I presume it does have an end. At this time, there is no end solicited. Okay, so there's, there's no so of 12 it is, it is or anything like that. It's an ongoing series now. There is no of. Well, then if I like that a lot more. I was, I was really worried that this was a limited series and it was going to end so weird that it wouldn't make any sense. And then it would, uh, 
when the movie comes out, it's just going to be even more confusing to, to readers. Well, I, there's, I'm sure there is an ending. I don't know where it is. I could see it going 12 issues, you know, 20 issues. Heck, it could go 75, 80 in the Starman vein, although I'm not sure how. Okay. Um, but overall, this is a very strong issue of a very strong series. When Miller is on, there are very few people who do better dialogue. Miller does that weird self-loathing kind of ironic stuff where you'll be walking along and you'll see a character on the street and he'll look happy and the thought balloon will be like, I hate my effing life. Yeah. You know, and that's, I mean, that's the, the best part of, of Kick-Ass for me is, yes, he, he's become famous, but he's not getting to actually share in any of the benefits of the fame because nobody knows he's Kick-Ass. He doesn't get the girl that he wants. He doesn't get respect from his friends. He doesn't even get a discount at the comic store. And not only that, they're selling shirts that say he sucks. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's nothing about superheroism that is inherently... That that is inherently helping this kid. Yeah, he's going out and he's risking his life, and there's really no payback. But he does it, and he can't stop. And that's the fascinating part of it. I'm going to go with probably uh, three and a half bruised and slightly bloody slices of meatloaf. Excellent. I just wish I would Marvel... go as high as four, but there was too many f words. <laughs> I just w wish Marvel would put us back on their uh, uh, solicitation list. So we can get these previews, you know, that would be nice. these early reviews so we can review them on time and such. But as it is, they only do that to a few very large websites and podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> so that was from January 2nd. Let's jump ahead a few weeks to last week where I got in the mail from D.C., Black Lightning Year One Number Two. Now there, Black Lightning! Black Lightning! Say my name! Let me in the funeral. Black Lightning. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these year ones that DC have put out have not been very good. The Huntress year one didn't care for it. Uh, the Batgirl year one was okay. Robin year one was okay. Year two was not so good. Batman year one, of course, was really good. Black Lightning number year one is actually a really good series. You know, I don't know a lot about Black Lightning except what we've seen in the, uh, in the JSA and the JLA. Uh, and even the outsiders, just a little bit. So I am not overly familiar, and I would I would bet Matthew that most readers are not familiar with Black Lightning's uh, backstory. Not as familiar, I would agree. So this story takes us back in time, although that time period is not the '70s in which he originated, probably maybe the '80s. Uh, but we see Jefferson Pierce returning to his roots in the suicide slums of Metropolis and going about the night trying to uh, rid the city of the 100, this gang, or rid the slums of the gang. And by day, he is the principal at the worst high school in uh, Metropolis. Mm -hmm. Very much like Welcome Back, Cotter, except people are killing each other. And, and somebody shoots most, lightning out of their fingers. So, Right, and most of that actually is... Uh, in keeping with the original Black Lightning series from 77. Yeah. Uh, issue 2 picks up after Black or after Jefferson Pierce has decided he needs to go about town at night trying to fill, find out who killed one of his students. And his actions are getting a little bit of attention. This issue really kind of reads a lot of the, uh, not uh, thought balloons, but a lot of the narration reads as an article from the Daily Planet written by... 
Clark Kent. Dun, dun, dun. Who decides to make an appearance in uh, the suicide slums to go and see what's going on at the uh, Garfield school. And this is very much the Brandon Routh uh, uh, Clark Kent that we see, the hair, the facial structure. Uh, they are having some very great exchanges. I love the dialogue exchanges between Clark Kent and Jefferson Pierce and how Jefferson Pierce, you can actually tell that he enjoys uh, helping his kids and trying to make them better and doing everything he can with zero budget, with crime left and right, people trying to kill him in his own school left and right, and how he's trying to make something of uh, this place. And he even points out, he says, you know, he does hint at Superman might be racist because he never is seen in suicide slums. And Clark Kent tries to defend by saying, well, my colleague Lois Lane talked to him and, and he said that there is some kind of power that drains him when he comes to suicide slums. Is that in keeping with history, Matthew? I am unfamiliar with that. I know that the original black lightning series did have a Superman cameo. Okay. But I don't remember anything. Well, my guess is that there is somebody somewhat magically powered or something, because we do have Tobias Whale as right. the uh, big, uh, uh, the potentate of, of the suicide slums. And there is this guy that we kind of don't really get a good picture of who looks like he could have magic powers of some kind. Is he, is he really short, bald, and wears like a purple bowler hat? <laughs> no, that would be uh, Matthew Spitalik. No, this guy has like, uh, <laughs> when I first saw it, let me find his picture. When I first saw him, I thought it was Alan Moore. <laughs> I mean, it's really? this guy that's got this, like, scraggly long hair, like Alan Moore from the 80s, scraggly long hair, very goth-looking. He's wearing these really dark glasses. You don't get a good look at him, at him but he certainly appears to be a, a, a guy that you don't mess around with. And, you don't want to mess around with Jim. Yeah, and by issue's end... Uh, Black Lightning is wanted by the police because he's a vigilante, even though he's turning in criminals. We get some indications that some, uh, obviously part of the police force is in on the criminals' uh, activities. But at the end, ends on Thanksgiving, where his family gathers around Jeff Jefferson Pierce at their home, and they give him a costume, the Black Lightning costume. And now he is able to jump out onto the streets, fight crime as Black Lightning. And it's pretty cool because he actually wears some kind of a a wig uh, that's not an afro, uh, but it's kind of like a dreadlock thing. And he wears a mask to cover his face so that people don't recognize him as Jefferson Pierce. But he's like, you know, I've got uh, a name. My name is Black Lightning, and I'm here to protect the suicide slums. It's a very great issue. I mean, cool. it's, it just reads really, really cool, especially if you get into this whole, you know, Matthew, you and I have had these discussions and Rodrigo have had these discussions about killing children on panel and putting harm to children. And it's very apparent that Jefferson Pierce is trying to protect the children uh, and the teenagers of this city and trying to give them a life which they normally wouldn't under the current regime. This is a uh, six-issue miniseries. They've right. jumped a lot from issue one to issue two. My guess is that he is going to bring down Tobias Whale and this uh, Alan Moore-looking character by series <laughs> end, and uh, it's going to be it's going to be pretty kick-ass. I mean, it's going to be pretty Black Lightning. Black Lightning. Uh, I'm going to give this issue. I'm giving it four and a half out of five stars. Wow. Or five meatloaves, charred meatloaves, because they got a little bit too much, too close to the electricity. The 
art is phenomenal. Cully Hamner's revamp of the original costume doesn't take too many liberties with it. No. But it, it kind of, I mean, it restages it because Black Lightning's original costume had a big open, you know, a shirt yeah. open to the belly Very button. Very 70s. And they've kind of reworked it into more of, a, of an 80s jacket, yeah. which looks really entertaining. But it maintains the color scheme and it maintains, you know, the fact that his mask was built into a hairpiece mm-hmm. to hide his identity. I think the fascinating thing about Black Lightning is for a character who's essentially very minor, there have been so many Black Lightning knockoffs mm-hmm. out there, yeah. it's, you know. But if you look at Black Vulcan. Yep. Black Vulcan, essentially Black Lightning. I, I mean, for all of No, go ahead. For all intents and purposes, same character, which, you know, you have to think about, I have pure electricity in my pants. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know if DC is doing this to be politically correct in a time when we have a black president, which is great. Uh, but I was really disappointed when they canceled the Blue Beetle series because here you had a minority that was living up beyond what uh, stereotypes put these minorities in. And the same thing is going true with, with Black Lightning. And I'm really proud that DC is doing that with both Jaime Reyes and Jefferson Pierce. And again, I, I mentioned it re- previously in my reviews. Um, if you remember recent issues of Justice League with the Brown Bomber. Yes, who was a racist white bigot who said the word black power and transformed into a superpowered black man. Yes. Apparently in the 70s, this was what DC was creating. This was going to be their first black superhero. Yes. And they, they hired Tony Isabella and said, this is what we want you to write. And Isabella's like, really? This is, this is what you want your first black superhero to be? A white guy? <laughs> and apparently out of that genesis came Black Lightning. Mm. And then Isabella wrote Black Lightning. And I don't think I'm going to spoiler it much by letting you know that, yeah, he eventually did take down Tobias Whale in the 100. Well, my guess is that's true <laughs> since he, uh, since Tobias Whale is now lurking in, in Gotham or was at the end of, of last year. And, uh, and uh, you know, Black Lightning is a, is a way powerful guy now. Yeah, I didn't want to spoil her anything. Oh, curse you, Matthew Peterson. So for, that, the, for the, <laughs> the Russells in the audience. So that was last week uh, from DC Comics. So let's jump ahead to our good friend, Back Rodrigo. To the future. Rodrigo, Rodrigo, it's your kids, Rodrigo. With a brand new issue that is in stores this week. What do you got for us, Rodrigo? I, I uh, read up on uh, Hero Squared, Love and Death number one. This is from Boom Studios. Boom Studios. Now, I was not aware that there had been a previous Hero Squared series. I just had never heard of it. Really? Yeah. I did not. So I picked this up, started looking through it, and possibly because I didn't read the last series, was not terribly impressed. Um, I found it very confusing. Basically, the main character dies within the first couple pages, and then he's alive again. Um, and I looked extensively all over the place for some kind of text box that said in the future or earlier at some point, you know, and, and it just kind of doesn't happen. I wonder. Um, and I don't know if that was just some sort of oversight or, you know, if I just couldn't find it. 
Well, I tell you what, I don't know who did the very first Hero Squared series. It may have been Boom. Uh, but mm-hmm. normally when Boom sends us these previews, they usually say, hey, if you haven't read the previous issues, here they are. Now, this is a second series, but even then, with their Warhammer stuff, they're like, oh, here's all the old Warhammer stuff if you want it as well. And I don't see that up on their on their secret sup, super secret uh, probation site. Right. So, well, hmm, so that could be kind of problem problematic, huh? It, it is. Um, you know, just reading through it, I wasn't uh, terribly impressed by it. I like the idea of, you know, here, basically, the, you know, two people from an alternate dimension dealing with the people from this dimension that they are, you know, and they're both like a superhero and a supervillain, essentially. So, basically, there's this guy and his girlfriend, and they're alternate dimension uh, doppelgangers are a superhero and his supervillain arch nemesis respectively. So it, you know, it, it creates some interesting stuff, but I just found it totally confusing. The art was a little confusing. Um, there's this little like imp that refers that, that, that hangs out with the supervillain and the supervillain is female. She's the girlfriend. Ah. And, you know, Keeps referring to her as she, but calls her my lord, as opposed to, like, my lady. And she wears, like, this giant mech suit to fight. So I was very confused at the beginning as to why the the gender of this character was up in the air. Or if it was, like, some sort of, like, mechanical lizard that kept changing its gender or something like that. I don't know. Hmm. Having I didn't read it yet. It's in my pile of things to read. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't confirm or, or fill you in on anything. Matthew, are you well, familiar with this this series, Hero Squared? I read the first couple of issues, and I gotta admit, it's Keith Giffen, and Keith Giffen is pretty spectacular. But I didn't stay on board precisely because of some of the complications that Rodrigo mentions. Um, having alternate universe versions of the same character, yeah, it's kind of funny, but it's also a little bit confusing. You know, even for me, it's gonna throw you off, and I think at one point, <laughs> if you, the first couple of issues. If you want what? a whole bunch of confusion, wait until the next issue of Final Crisis hits, where you get all sorts of alternate versions of your favorite characters. <laughs> I was there for the original Crisis Uphill Both Ways, sir. I didn't even know what Earth 4 was. <laughs> but now I know, and now I regret it. But... <laughs> um. Hero Squared was one of those series that I wanted to love more than I did, and I could never really put my finger on why. All right. There you go. So, All right. Rodrigo, are you going to give this any, any meatloaf, or are you saying uh, go straight to bed without any? Uh, well, I'll give, it, I'll give it at least two slices, because you know, the, the, the premise is interesting, and it's not even the, the alternate dimension stuff. It's not what what made it confusing to me. I think there were possibly references to the previous book that were a little confusing. And at the very end, and I'm just, I'm going to spoiler the end for you. No, basically goofy in a superhero outfit shows up and he's like, let's go save the universe. Wonder. And super goof, super goof. Okay. Yeah. And it's, I think it's supposed to be like a what? And like make you interested. (laughs) But I was like, okay, yeah, this looks like a good jumping off point. I mean, so I can get off this this series. Jane, get me off this crazy thing. So I'll, I'll give it. I'll give it 
a, a slice of meatloaf and a slice of alternate reality meatloaf. So it'll, that'll be two slices of meatloaf All right. right there. Good enough. Good enough. There are, are they really the same meatloaf? <laughs> they might be. <laughs> well, one of them's from an alternate dimension, so that meatloaf may be made of spam. <laughs> there are plenty of great comics out there, as I mentioned a few moments ago. The economy is really sucking, which means that people need to go out and help the economy. Go out to your local comic book shop and buy some stuff this week. If you're wanting for, wanting some recommendations, make sure you head over to Majorspoilers.com, where we have all sorts of reviews going up left and right. Usually left, and usually right. once a day. <laughs> but every single week, those of you who watch and listen, and I don't know why you're watching, because there's really no video. But <laughs> and be thankful when, there isn't. When you experience... The gestalt, the cultural je ne sais quoi, the pièce de résistance, the via con queso. That is <laughs> the major spoilers podcast. I had that for you dinner. know that when, when the reviews are over, it's time, it's time, Spock, for us to look at the major spoilers poll of the week. week, 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 week. Oh, no. And the poll of the week is what we got because the week is over, but now there's a poll. What up? <laughs> week. <laughs> All right. Poll of the week this week, Matthew. What do you got for us? Oh, no. <laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> uh, every show. This week, Robot Wars going to a whole new level, pitting the old school against the even older school. Robots, 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 but this time, they're hot. Robots who look like women, fighting for your convenience. And remember, ladies, please at least have the decency to oil up first. <laughs> In the far because corner, if you're a robot, you would want to be far flung year. Oh, that's good. Good point. 1976. <laughs> Jamie <laughs> Summers, <laughs> tennis <laughs> champion, <laughs> apparently <laughs> fell out of a plane <laughs> or something. <laughs> she was dating Colonel Steve Austin. And though it didn't quite cost $6 million, it was actually $6.98. <laughs> we can rebuild her, mostly. She ain't all robot, but she has the power when it counts. The original, I must say, the original of the bionic woman. All right, now the bionic woman, one arm, two legs, and an one eye? Arm, two legs and an ear. Oh, and an Jamie. ear, not the eye, okay. Right, Steve had a robotic, or excuse me, bionic eye. Jamie had a bionic ear, which gave her super hearing. She had both legs. Uh, technically, you have to think that her spine was reinforced as well. You would hope. Because, you know, both legs and but it, an arm. But it was a government contract job, so you, that know, is true. you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Lowest contractor right there. But her opponent, we're actually going to, we're going to singulate, presuming that's a word, and if it's not, I just made it up, and that is to separate <laughs> one from the pack. Singulate. Did you hear that, Miriam uh, Webster's? Next year, damn it. Singulate. I like to singulate the bionic woman, all right. You write that <laughs> crap down, you English bastards, because Matthew's starting a meme. Um, <laughs> singulate 
one of the deadly fembots designed to lure Austin Powers to his inevitable doom. We're going to go with the one that looks like Cindy Margolis. That's fine by me. The world's most downloaded woman. And by download, I believe they actually mean masturbated to. <laughs> and there's our adult tag for the week. <laughs> okay. are so hairy. <laughs> That explains Which really it. Explains a lot. Now that I mention it, <laughs> my eyesight's going. It's bad times. Wait a minute, my eyesight's going. <laughs> I actually had my last pair of glasses carved out of the windshield of a '68 Plymouth. <laughs> <laughs> so this week, our our poll of the week: Would you prefer? And I don't know if this case, if it's a fight, if it's a pillow fight, maybe it's a couple of hours of kissing practice. Um, <laughs> I'm going to hell for that joke. I know I am. Um, The bionic woman in the one hand. (laughs) Oh, no. A fembot in in the other hand. So, so wait, what's the question again? (laughs) In order to cover it, I need a third hand. Mm. (laughs) All right. Jokes. Right now, I'm leaning because, again, I am old school, and quite frankly, Cindy Margolis looks like she's carved out of cheese. I'm leaning, of course, towards Jamie Summers, the bionic woman, because – and here's a story that you don't care about. My first interaction – So fast forward about 10 minutes. (laughs) My first interaction with uh, the the actress Lindsay Wagner was apparently – she was talking about her first acting job, and apparently in like 1974 – in New York City, Mayor Lindsay was voted out of office in favor of Mayor Wagner, and her first professional job was going to the inauguration as Lindsay Wagner, while Mayor Lindsay was replaced by Lindsay by Mayor Wagner. Interesting. And that that story sticks with me as one of the things that kept me out of the really good schools. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go with the Bionic Woman, Jamie Summers, because really she's. She's got that sort of 70s je ne sais quoi. She looks good in a kimono, but can also leap over a building as long as you make the noise. Rodrigo, who do you have a preference for? Did you ever watch any of the original Jamie Summers Bionic Woman? I did. I used to I used to watch that. I there's this one that the womb. Yes. Was it dubbed? My mom because had a setup. It I've was always, actually when I watched it. When I watched it in in, in Mexico, it was dubbed. Oh, was so it? when interesting. She, when she fought the Bigfoot, what did they call him? Pie Grande, probably. <laughs> Sorry, that was always one of the things that sticks with me. Bigfoot's well, the, the one that sticks name? with me for some for some reason is um, I, she's like going undercover or something, and she has a cigarette and she doesn't smoke, so she's like. And she like chops down the cigarette to look like she's been smoking it. <laughs> and I remember like even as a kid thinking like, seriously, just smoke it. <laughs> just light it up and it be done with it. was the 70s. What's yeah, the deal? I mean, like you risk more by somebody seeing you like karate uh, chop the crap out of a cigarette at super speed than by just taking a puff and maybe coughing a little bit. Oh, not my standard brand. <laughs> So, so who yeah. would you go for in this battle of the gynoid robots? 
I would actually go for the for the bionic woman because I mean the the fembots, you know, what what are they? They're they're basically just a couple of machine guns, real dolls with machine guns stuffed up in them. Real dolls with machine guns stuffed up inside them. Okay, now there's never mind. <laughs> Take that as you will. So, Stephen, I went with. I, it's very <laughs> simple for me. I went with uh, Jamie Summers. Ooh. The dreaded hat trick, the trifecta, yeah. if you will. Well, actually, the majority of our uh, major spoilers, faithful spoilerites voting, agree with the three of us right now. 177, uh, excuse me, 187 numbers, and I have a very tumultuous relationship. 57% of those viewers, or almost half, are uh, <laughs> voting for Jamie Summers, with only 43% falling for the inflatable woman made of cheese. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go uh, this is you know this is kind of a close fight but I'm still saying the old school has the edge I would agree just like last week's poll about uh, which Miyagi did people prefer or which Karate Kid did people prefer of uh, everybody went old school with uh, Pat Morita so there you go did you guys see any of the new Bionic Woman no it's not. the same reason why I don't watch any of the new Knight Rider, because they're raping my childhood mind, and I, I hate it. Watch, I did watch a little bit of it. It was very unimpressive. Well, it got really? canceled in like three episodes, so. Yeah. The The big problem with it is that, um, like, the bionic woman is implausible as a concept, and when you try to update it and make it all serious, like, it just brings up how incredibly implausible yeah. it is. They hey. tried to Battlestar Galactica, and they tried to take you know the elements that were more outre and write it over with some deep philosophical commentary, and you know it doesn't always work to make something more serious. Yeah, I think we're gonna you have know? to have a serious discussion. Uh, well, well, we'll do this after the show. Another bonus episode down the road, boys and girls. Be on the lookout bonus. for it. Shows that raped our childhood that actually didn't suck. Will you stop saying <laughs> that? What? When maybe you, maybe it's like, a, like an old school <laughs> rape, like the, the rape of Europa or something. There you go. It just, it just it stole our childhood. There you go. It just literally means to tie up and carry away. There you yep. go. <laughs> the Sabin women and your childhood. So speaking of our childhood. <laughs> yes. We're going to jump back in time. Oh, man. The Segway machine is broken again, Rodrigo. Can you work on that? Uh, damn it, Matthew. I'm a video producer, not a machinist. I got nothing. Uh, I got nothing either. Our oh. major spoilers trade paperback review, 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 review. Major spoilers. Trade paperback. Yeah, it just doesn't have the same ring. No, it yeah. really doesn't. Trade. This week we are going 20, is it 15 years? 15 years. Into the past. Into the past, 1994. I remember getting this series when it came out and just marveling at the uh, at the cover. At the covers, which is so fantastic. Here's this plastic wrapped around my comic book, and <gasps> inside are such beautiful pictures. I must pick this up. Of course, we're talking about Marvels from Marvel. What was the cover price of the first issue of Marvel? Uh, let me bucks? look here. I actually dug out my original ones just for this. As uh, did I, but I can't find them anymore. Five ninety-five. So six dollars. Wow. 
at a point in time where comic books were a buck and a quarter. Yeah. And we paid it. But this is a prestige format, number one. Okay. Prestige. Well, prestige in that it still has a staple in the middle of it. Staple. But, you know, you had the hard card stock. <laughs> card stock. And the pages were all nice and glossy. Something you st- I don't think the pages were this glossy in 1994. Glossy. And the fact now, that you, you had... Ask, if you ask Matthew, the pages have never been as glossy as they were back in 1983. <laughs> 83. And then, of course, you had to pay Alex Ross's uh, uh, salary... For for a four-issue series that's completely painted. Painted. That was intense. I think Marvel's was was the first time that I, like, picked up. Because I picked it up as a trade paperback. And I was like, oh, this looks interesting. And I opened it. And I was seriously, honestly not expecting it to be painted on the inside. Because you always see it. The cover always looks a lot. Not always. Yeah. It's like the old Dr. Spectre. Yeah. So the premise of this series premise. is that Phil Sheldon, not to be confused with Phil Spector. Spector, Spector. Or, or the Spector. Yeah. Phil Sheldon. Or Ronnie Spector. <laughs> or Ronnie Shell, who did the voice of the Spector. <laughs> or also the voice of Jason Condor Number 2, who fought Spectra. <laughs> I can do this for hours. (laughs) We don't got that much time. Senseless Uh, pop culture. So Phil Sheldon is just your average, ordinary Joe on the street, trying to make a living as a newspaper photographer. He does get on with the the Bugle. And we see the Marvel Universe through his eyes. We start in in the Golden Age with the introduction of the Human Torch. So we start back in the 1930s and leading up to World War II. And the Thank series you. ends, I think, in the 1970s. The series ends with the death of Gwen Stacy uh, and how this character becomes maybe a little bit jaded about superheroes over time. And I think the thing that really surprised me most about this series when I first read it was that here we're seeing a story told through the eyes of Joe Citizen. You know, we're not seeing it from Stan Lee, uh, omnipresent narrator. We're seeing it through the eyes of... Greetings, heroes. <laughs> Stanley, my goodness, we didn't know you were going to be on the show Excelsior. today. Excelsior! Right. I'm always back here, Stephen. I got nothing <laughs> that's right. else uh, That's why we keep giving those little nuts and peanuts every once in a while. And... Octogenarian pervert! <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just thought this was a marvelous telling of these big key moments in Marvel history. And I'm not a Marvel reader. For those people that are up on the site or listen to the podcast, you know I'm not a huge Marvel reader. And especially in the 90s, I was not reading anything Marvel at all except for the prestige um, retelling of the Steve Rogers Captain America. Right, the Captain America, uh, Captain America the Origin or the Adventures of Captain America. Something like that. It was like a three or four prestige series. And you have to With think. By, um by um, Kevin. Something like that. Kevin, Kevin, You'll Kevin, Kevin Sullivan. Okay. No, I'll, I'll have to take your word for it. But you also have to think that back in 1994, Matthew and I were still young punk college kids. And 595, that was like a week's worth of sandwiches. Work. That was like a, a week's worth of sandwiches. I think we were at 425 back then. I think we may have been at 375. <laughs> it might have been. So it took us two hours to earn the money to pay for one of these issues. And I gladly would go out and buy this, buy these issues. And at I, the point, at the point in time this came out, 
it was one of the first books that I was really impressed by the fact that the art, yeah, the art was spectacular, but it was all about the story, and the story was equally as incredible at a point in time where we were seeing books like, you know, Force Works, and we were seeing storytelling. This was, you know, almost immediately in the, the two or three years after the image boom took over the industry right. to where, you know, if you had a character with no ankles and his name having the words death, strike, blood, or force, you could actually make $100,000. I always want to do a character called Death Strike Blood Force. Yeah, but then Rob Liefeld would sue you. For what? <laughs> because <laughs> he can. Because We're infringing he can. <laughs> on his infringement of the Hulk, that's what for. No, the man's name is Smash. He has green right. pants and purple skin. Oh, <laughs> yes. It's a... Perfectly new telling. It's a it's a banner year at the Liefeld House. Majorspoilers.com, people. Go check it out. You should yes, totally do it. All all it's of hilarious. all will be revealed there. Uh okay, now let me ask you this, Matthew. And, and Rodrigo too, please jump in. Uh, well, first let's get Rodrigo's general impression of this series. Okay. Wait, now? Yes, now. One, two, three, go. <laughs> That's the whole I, point of first. Uh, okay. Well, no, I really liked it. Um I remember, you know, just just reading through it, and and for me, this was, this, this led me to look up a lot of other Marvel stuff because for me, you know, Marvel comics basically started with um, X Men Second Genesis. You know, that was like that was probably the earliest the earliest thing that I'd read up until that point. So first off, you know, here's this this guy they keep calling the Human Torch, and his name's like what, like John Hammond or something like that. Jim Hammond. Like, Jim Hammond. Who the hell is that? The Human Torch is named Johnny Storm, and he's a happy-go-lucky guy. He hangs out with a guy, orange guy made out of rocks. So, <laughs> you know, as far as that goes, I was real interested. And, yeah, I mean, the Marvel's, secondly, and one of, the, one of the things that I really liked about it is that it's one of the few books that actually encapsulates what it's like to be a human in the Marvel Universe and interact with mutants. Because a lot of the time you're like, well, what's so different between, you know, mutants and, again, you know, some giant flying robot that's on fire. Um, and this book really gives it to you straight. It, it, it shows you why people were afraid of some superheroes and why people were afraid of mutants. Mm -hmm. right. The thing that it just amazed me, and we've already mentioned it, Matthew's mentioned it, you open it up and it's just these beautiful illustrations and what had Alex Ross done before Marvels? He did a run for Now Comics of Terminator, I believe. Terminator: The Burning Earth, if if memory serves. Okay, but, but that would have been he hadn't that would have yeah, been he Dark hadn't Horse. Done a whole lot. Do what? I'm sorry. Terminator: The Burninator. That was with All Dark right. Horse, though, right? No, now. Oh, okay. So probably not a lot of people had read that. This was really what put Alex on the map. Well, and, and, and I should say Kurt Busick, too. Busick had been around for years at that point, and he was kind of, you know, he was one of those guys that you look at and go occasionally, oh, Kurt Busick writes a cute story. But, I mean, Ale one of my real complaints about Alex Ross is that whenever we do an Alex Ross story, yes. the writer is kind of metaphorically writing at the top of his lungs. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have been reading Project Superpowers from Dynamite. We, we've talked about it, yeah. Project Superpowers has some characters who are essentially cardboard through and through. Right. 
But because of the Alex Ross art and the characterizations that Alex Ross's art tends to build in your mind, they're throwing a whole lot of extra baggage at these two-dimensional heroes like the Black Terror and the Green Llama and V-Man. And the characters really don't, you know, their structure, their, their basic what have you, their, their, their very essence doesn't have the wherewithal to carry it. This is a point where Kurt Busick was writing at a level that perfectly complemented what Alex was doing. So when you see the human torch break out of the tube mm-hmm. or melt out of the tube and everyone in the room start to panic, it's a story element that we've probably all seen you know, once or twice, because they talk, you know, you'll see the reprint once in a while. And I read Invaders back in the day, which had this human torch in it. Right. But the moment where Phil actually starts to panic because there's a man on fire and Alex Ross's art shows a man on fire, not the human torch as we've seen him. I mean, that is a really realistic, scary hard to process image but the the story is there and the story makes the art better and the art feeds back into the story and makes it more realistic and more more immediate mm-hmm. but for you it it's still i mean this was the first time again that most people are exposed to alex ross's art and here you're flipping through and you see well my goodness isn't that uh who is that that looks an awful lot like Tony Stark? Why, who's that guy? He looks an awful lot like, my goodness, it's it's George, Paul, John, and Ringo back there. Mm-hmm. You know, he's starting to paint in these realistic characters. Even the uh, character of, of Mr. Fantastic starts mm-hmm. to take on the appearance of characters that we've seen before. And so part Russell of the... Johnson. Part of the fun in reading Marvels, then, for me is saying, wait a minute, here's somebody that's actually painting people that we know into the story, and how freaking cool is that? Because it became then a, let's really pay attention to the art, and let's really dive into uh, the pages and into the panels and see what is all the detail that he has put back there. And when you start paying to that, paying attention to that detail, and looking, and again, I'm looking at the page where um, Reed and Sue are kissing, leading right up to the point where they decide to activate the, uh, the uh, what are those big purple things, the Sentinels. Mm-hmm. And you really start going back and you're looking, you're like, oh my God, right there is J. Jonah Jameson, and next to him is Norman Osborn, and right in front is, uh, is Dick Van Dyke and, and, uh, and, and Mary Tyler Moore. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you're like, oh my God, he has painted all of these people going all the way back to the back row, and you can still tell who they are. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that drew me more into the story and made the story more interesting than, say, maybe you, Matthew, who, and maybe even today, I mean, it, it, it is a problem today, I think, with some of Alex Ross's stuff, where suddenly it breaks us out of the story. The stunt casting, as I refer to it, here is, is, is actually useful. Because Marvels is not telling an ongoing narrative. It's not, here's an issue, and next issue this will happen, and next issue will this happen. Marvels was four year, four issues, rather, set over the space of maybe 35, 40 years. Yeah. One issue so, per decade, essentially. Right. And throwing, you know, Rob and Laura Petrie 
gives it that feel where you're like, oh, all right, this takes place around maybe 1963 or so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, at, or a certain time frame. It it evokes a period in your mind. And if you look, you know, at the Beatles, I believe, were actually at Reed and Sue's wedding in the Fantastic Four oh, really? annual. They were actually drawn into the page. Oh, that's cool. I believe. I can't say for sure. Alex Ross is famous for throwing the Beatles and the monkeys into things. They both appeared in Kingdom Come. Right. But... But he did it, it in Marvels for, first. He did it in Marvel. <laughs> he did it for Marvel first. It works for me because the stunt casting isn't trying to make me buy into. I have the hiccups again. My goodness! It isn't trying to make me buy Stop into drinking, the monthly man. adventures. Hey, hush! Of Tommy Lee Jones and week. you know porn star Stephanie Swift. Yeah. When I you know, Norman Osborn has Tommy Lee Jones, and that was actually Mike Deodato. It wasn't. Um, Alex Ross and all, but you know Norman Osborn well, or Greg Land sat, or whoever. Right? Well, Greg Land, that's flat out tracing. I'm sorry, Greg Land doesn't have a character design from page to page. <laughs> Whereas you know Deodato, for all of his flaws, is intentionally drawing a character who looks like a character, right? Or rather, looks like a live actor. Um, Alex's stunt casting in this series, especially, is subtle enough and muted enough that it works for the story. And now Steven's dead. No, I'm still here. <laughs> I always love those pauses where I feel like I'm supposed to be entertaining for another 30 seconds. Yeah, go, so go right ahead and do that. I, I can edit all that good stuff out. So <laughs> then, okay, so let's just, there's another great page. You were just talking about Project Superpowers, the end of the first issue where they're parachuting into Nazi Germany. And it looks like all the, is, are those all the Project Superpowers people? Or are those Marvel heroes that are parachuting in? I see Captain America and Namor and Bucky. Those are Marvel heroes. Are the they Destroyer. All? Okay. Yeah, Captain USA. But it kind of reminds me of, again, what, like you said, what Project Superpowers was doing. But let's take oh, a yes. look at this from the perspective of, um, of Phil Sheldon. You know, this, the time period of the 30s when we're coming out of the Great Depression and, and, and going up to World War II is a time of, of great change in this country. Uh, and there's a lot of optimism, I think, in this country. And to have a superpower, this human torch, start flying around, uh, suddenly that's got to get everybody jazzed. But then it all kind of goes to crap when Namor and the human torch have their big battle in New York City, and Phil Sheldon is all gung-ho about this. He wants to get great photographs. You could probably almost see uh, an early Peter Parker enthusiasm in capturing these pictures. Mm-hmm. But it's in the fight with... Namor and the Human Torch above the city of Manhattan that uh, one of them gets thrown through a building and a brick goes and knocks Phil Sheldon's eye out. Mm-hmm. The next issue is still, when we go into issue two, though, this is where we get into the rise of the mutants. We start to get this uh, 60s time period. We may have, mm-hmm. maybe 50s and 60s, where instead of the Human Torch from the Golden Age, we have the Johnny Storm, we have the Sue and the Reeds. We start to see this incursion of the mutants and this one mutant baby where people are really kind of getting up in arms into it. And I think, Rodrigo, you said he almost got wound up with that mob mentality. Yeah, he gets he gets into it. I think, doesn't doesn't he actually, like, pick up a rock and throw it at one of yeah, the like, Iceman? He, he chucks a rock at Iceman, and he's, I mean, he's yelling epithets at the mutants, so... The, I think they're the original five X-Men. Yeah. Do you think, and I'm curious, 
Do you think that that rock hitting him in the in the face and knocking his eye out is that signaling a a change? Is, is that I mean, it's a defining point in Phil Sheldon's life, but is it not a defining point in America's life? where all of a sudden we did change into something different. We became a lot more cynical about the things that were around us. We feared a lot more. We were more than willing to take on the, uh, the, the, the characters on, what is it, Elm, Elm Street? Well, I think, I think most importantly the... Uh, Turning on our neighbors? Kind of the, the rock to the eye thing is, is saying that, you know, here's this book that maybe up until now you're like, uh, walking along and saying, oh, "Okay, well, this is this is another you know, what if superheroes were real kind of thing." Yeah, you know, I've seen plenty of this. This is this is saying this in this book, superheroes impact the lives of real people. Mm-hmm. Like, here's a person who would not be like this if not for superheroes. And so like, he's lashing the fact out. That he wears an eye patch throughout the entirety of the rest of the series and that new series that Matthew talked about, right? I mean, yeah, a couple of weeks yeah. ago, through, oh, the through the eye of the camera or whatever. You know, that's, that's you know, every time you look at that character is a reminder that everything that the superheroes are doing is affecting the little man, which is kind of what Marvels is all about. And so he's essentially lashing out. But doesn't he well, then become, I don't know, a little bit more, by the third book, a little bit more appreciative of the heroes when it's the whole Silver Surfer, Silver Surfer Galactus thing going you, on? If you take a step back... There's a more fundamental transformation that happens during the Torch Namor battle. He's actually, in that first segment, the, the first issue, he's, you know, he's talking to his girlfriend and they break up because it would be irresponsible to have children right. in, in a world. And then he actually is injured and he loses the vision in his eye. And that is kind of what convinces him that it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Because yes, he loses. Maybe he lost an eye, but the world seems to be a slightly better place. And the torch and Namor, I think, flooded New York City and killed a billion people or something. I don't know. That's but a lot of people. At the end of issue one, he actually accepts those original, you know, the the invaders, those characters, and marries his girlfriend and decides, well, it's going to be okay after all. And it's only a few, you know what, 20 years, 15 years later, when the mutants show up, that he starts looking at it and going, hey, wait a minute. Was it? I have the same question about issue two that I have every time a comic book talks about how rough it is to be a mutant. I want you to take Ben Grimm and picture Ben Grimm in your mind, okay? Yeah. Okay. Now, you're a man, right? Yep. This monster. Okay. Yep. Ben Grimm, six foot tall, Orange rocks, 500 pounds. Now, I want you to picture on, to his right, in her original little green mini skirt with the deep cleavage, Jean Grey. Right. 19-year-old, nubile, little pneumatic girl in her mini dress and her go-go boots with her big pointy mask. Done. The people, the people of the, <laughs> yeah. The people of the Marvel Universe look at Ben and see a hero. The people of the Marvel Universe look at Gene and see a monster. The people of the Marvel Universe are fucking stupid. You, you think? Because that is, that is kind of the whole point of in, in, in uh, issue two is, and it's right up to that halfway point. Everything leads up to that point where uh, Sue and Reed kiss, yep. and everything's great because they got transformed in outer space. That was a space accident. But here right. are these people, these 
lessers, these people that are evolving. Yeah, you're right. That's what's hard for me to believe about the Marvel Universe and the mutant hysteria is, yes, the Hulk is treated as sort of an aberration and a monster, but people look at the thing and people look at, to some degree, Namor, and people look at, you know, Johnny Storm bursting into flame or, you know, if you go on to the Avengers, a guy who says he's a god and hits you with a hammer, and they look at these and they say, these are good people, they have our best interests in mind, but somehow, you know, Dazzler or Wanda Maximoff or, you know, Rogue are monsters. And girl, girl, I'm, girl. I'm sorry. Have you looked at these women? I know. Girl, girl, girl. Emma Frost. Woo. They are all right. Monsters. So people are a little weird. But in issue two, it's all about rebelling, very much like the time period. Issue three, I've yet to kind of figure out a theme in that because it is the Silver Surfer Galactus thing. Maybe it's the right. realization that... People are, you know, walking in the fields of gods or something? I think it's the realization that no matter how weird the mutants are, there are bigger and more dangerous things to worry yeah, about. Yeah, scarier things. I mean, it, it, ju Judgment Day. The world will end yesterday. Yeah. You know, and the if you put yourself in the perspective... By the way, in the perspective of is our new one of the things that... Oh, you no, said Matthew Spitalik! You said it seven times last week, and I said it Did nine. I? Wow, yeah, my goodness. We say it a lot. Drinking we, game. I, Major well, spoilers. Drinking game. So I want you, pretend you're Rob Petrie. It's 1966. You live in, in Poughkeepsie, New York. And you hear these, these stories about this mysterious silver guy flying around the city, and then this giant alien with a big G on his chest. And, you know, G could stand for God. Could. So basically, basically, this alien Frankie Avalon and God show up, <laughs> and they're telling you that they're going to destroy the Earth. Now, I don't know about you, but that's probably going to knock a hole in my afternoon. <laughs> you know, it's the <laughs> this is something that was never treated in the comics as anything more than hey, another supervillain, right? But really, this was a giant being from space. You know, proof of alien life saying, we're going to destroy your planet, we're going to eat you and use your energy, but hey, it could be worse, you could have a headache. A story that takes place on the verge, and I don't know the exact date, but on the verge of... But on the verge of Earthlings wanting to step out into space. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's got to be a really mind bender, <coughs> which is why everybody goes to church and why everybody is... You know, like you said, waiting for the end of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, it, so as, he, as do you think ridiculous that, as Galactus's armor is, he's still a 50-foot giant from outer yeah. space. Do you think Phil Sheldon then, by the end of that, that third issue, kind of has softened on the whole mutant hero thing? He's, well, I think he kind of he softens about it by the end of, like, the issue with the... Yeah, with a little mutant Even girl. with the X-Men in it, yeah, because so. he... You know, first off, he catches himself getting swept up in the mob mentality, and then there's, like, the little mutant girl that he helps out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his, um, his kids, I think, bring her home. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think there is kind of, like, you know, the, the series bounces you back and forward as far as his opinion between, oh, what a great and wondrous world we live in, and holy crap, this is, the world is so scary. We're there all are gods, gonna die. Us, so there are exploding buildings all over the place. 
you know, and and I think it does a good job, and that's kind of what the Marvel. I mean, it does a, a good uh, a good chronicle of what the Marvel universe has been, because you know, like the times, the comics kind of lighten and darken and lighten and darken and lighten and darken. Yeah, and maybe it's my perspective because I'm an old dude with a family, but I looked at issue three and I basically walked away from issue three with the old cliche of. On the day you die, nobody ever says, gee, I wish I'd worked more. Mm-hmm. You know, issue three is kind of Phil going, you know, I really should spend more time with the people I love. Right. Because the Marvel Universe is essentially, for all intents and purposes, our universe, except for the 50-foot godlike being with the <laughs> antlers. And right. you come into this issue, he's, you know, he's working, he's working, he's working. He's he's obsessed with the whole superhero thing. He's obsessed with the paranoia and the mutant hysteria and why do people hate their heroes? Why are they turning on Spider-Man? Whatever. Or I think it was Iron Man, actually, in issue three. Neither here nor there. Um, you go through this, and he finally comes to the realization that he's been neglecting his family. And, oh, by the way, Frankie Avalon is here, and he says God's going to eat the planet. Yeah. Go home and hu- hug your kid. Right. You know, it... And it does, he comes out of it wondering what other people are seeing, what you know, why people are so willing to look at these creatures who basically go and fight God and Frankie Avalon and still say they suck. Well, he t- ends up taking that and turns it into a best-selling book mm-hmm. of all his photographs that he's taken. He still remains a photographer. Yes. Uh, and so he's kind of in the, I don't want to say midlife crisis, because he's older than that by the time we hit the 70s. Yeah, he's probably in his 60s. If you figure he was around 20, 25 in the 40s. Yeah. And he meets this young girl, uh, Gwen Stacy, who wants to kind of be mentored by him. <laughs> you think he has an infatuation with her? I don't. I think it's uh, it's sort of a, of a paternal or a familial bond. You know, someone someone younger than him who kind of shares some of his ideals, someone that he can, you know, pass along and say, here's, you know, but I don't think he's got the hots for. Okay. I didn't know. I kind of got the feeling that he was kind of like, you know, I want to guide you, but I, you know, I kind of like you because you remind me of what it's like to be young again and to see the world through new eyes instead of my old disgruntled, gruntled, crabby old man, get off my lawn eyes. Mm-hmm. Or I should say I. Uh, <laughs> And then it's all dashed when her neck gets snapped. Yep. You'd yeah. Think that that would... That's. I mean, he goes through a depression stage, and wants to say, "Screw all the heroes." That's the moment where everything changed, though, in the Marvel universe. When you look at it. Oh, you're correct. Absolutely. I think right. the death of Gwen Stacy is really the turning point between that exciting and ever-changing early Marvel universe from '61 to. You know, going forward into the seventies, where things, Became let's be frank, kind of kind of stagnated. Yeah. But if you look at the arc, he started in the forties. He was afraid of them, and then he accepted them. And then by the sixties, he not only accepted them, he was kind of lionizing them and going, "Yes, they are the great thing." And uh, except for the mutants, I'm going to throw a rock at their head. And then he starts, you know, thinking, "Well, maybe the mutants are teaching us something. Maybe all of these people, these." things these heroes exist to try and teach us to be better people and maybe you know they're here to help us and to save us and protect us to allow us to become better people and then gwen dies and he's like well wait a minute 
Spider-Man should have saved her life. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's one of these marvels. He should have. He should. What did he? You know, what do you? What do you? What do you? Maybe what what he realizes is that the heroes are just human after all. They're no better than he is. No, they still can make mistakes. This is the point where he. This is the point where I feel like he really kind of breaks. Yeah. And he's like, you know what? I'm done. This is this is no longer heroism as I know it. It's that moment where he he accepts that, and I think we've all had this moment. And it's not as though we're old. Well, Stephen is, but get off my <laughs> lawn, you sons of guns! That's right. It's the get off my lawn moment where he's like, "These aren't the heroes of my youth. That's not music. That's just noise." Right. Comic books were better when I was this a boy. Spider Man. This Spider Man. I do not like this Spider Man. Would you I would like not, him in the train? Not, in a box. I would not, <laughs> could not, with a fox. I would not like him on a train, nor on a bridge, nor in the rain. No, do not throw me to my death and snap my neck. Oh, that would suck. <laughs> Burma shave. But again, you see him. <laughs> you once again see him, though, kind of returning back to his family, and instead of trying to put Gwen Stacy under his, his wing, he says, hey, daughter, you... Come in and be, you know, let me teach you. Let's Jeez. see the world through your eyes again. And, oh, here's this young, nice boy. Oh, this boy that's a, a, a fine young lad, an upstanding citizen. What's your name, boy? Danny Ketch, sir. Oh, yes, a fine, fine young lad. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> hear about him. <laughs> Not until his head turns blue and he bursts into flame. Okay, so. Uh, dun, dun. Any Rodrigo, any th- other thoughts on this? Dun, 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 dun. On Marvels in general? Yes, because I have a dun, couple dun. of follow-up questions that I think only Matthew can answer. Or maybe you can too, but I don't know. Um, no, no further thought. No, I, you know, I, again, it's, I was pretty young when I read Marvels, and it just, it was one of the first times when I was looking at a comic book and and thinking that these stories could take place in a world that wasn't a cartoon, mm-hmm. you know, because, uh, you know, superheroes are pretty implausible. They get thrown through walls and stuff like that. And, you know, nothing ever happens to them. Kind of like those old Tom and Jerry cartoons, all kinds of, you know, they would just massacre each other, but that's a they call would never, back, ladies and gentlemen, that's a what a callback. There you go. This is, this is for all you people who sp- skipped the first part of the podcast. Now you're going to have to go back and listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the little cat with a garbage can on his head was named Meathead. Uh, Meathead. I thought that was Choo Choo. Moving right along. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, let me ask you a question. That <laughs> hit me. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, let me ask you a question. All right. Uh, Marvel's, it, was there a follow-up series to this a few years later? Sort of. And it was in what form? There was a two-issue series written by Warren Ellis or Garth Ennis. They're <laughs> the same, the same person. I believe it was Warren Ellis. In fact, it was reprinted very recently called Ruins. Yes, that's it. Ruins was basically an alternate version of this story where instead of everything you know going well, bad things happened. Okay. Uh, the the big image from Ruins that always sticks in my head is Galactus's body floating in space on the cover of the National Enquirer with a note 
or with a headline in big bold letters that reads God's body found in space proof that he is dead. Now, nice. let me ask you this. Do you think that Marvel's because of the success of seeing the the Marvel universe from the average Joe perspective, is that how we ended up with Frontline? Probably to some degree. I mean, there are a lot of things that spun out of Marvels, uh, not the least of which would be Astro City. Right. Astro City! Astro City and many of the books that, you know, we see like Common Grounds from Image or, Mm -hmm. you know, any number of these things that deal with the characters as more than just the superhumans. So, and uh, I guess the next thing I was going to ask, so where does this new Through the Lens series, what is it all about then? Marvel's Eye of the Camera is actually what Phil, or not Phil, <laughs> Phil Sheldon, what Kurt Busiek initially wrote as, apparently, a sequel to Marvel's. What ah, was okay. going to take us up through through the 70s and into the 90s and deal with things like the Secret advent of the invasion. Punisher and the monster heroes and Danny yeah. Ketch becoming Ghost Rider. Okay. All, of the things that, all the things that I will tell you ruined the Marvel Universe. Okay, all right. That that makes sense. Okay, I just wanted to kind of see where where this this tale may have led readers to. If you're looking for some other things to read uh, beyond Marvels, if you really got a kick out of it, some other things that you might want to check out. Uh, definitely Astro City. Yeah, definitely Astro City. I mean, yep. Uh, Brian, our good friend Brian, uh, longtime friend of the show, and used to be co-host of the show until his wife told him no. Uh, <laughs> He no wrote more in, nerding. <laughs> he wrote in and said, three things got me interested in comics again, Kingdom Come, Marvels, and Astro City. Alex Ross's art and design totally, was totally new to me. Along with the intelligent story by Kurt Busiek, uh, these works made these books classic. Classics. Mm-hmm. Rodrigo, you got some, some listener response? Do I? I think you should. Major spoilers feedback. Yes. I have a comment here by Mos Def, who is um, – I, I love his music. <laughs> so so glad you guys are doing a podcast I can relate to. Ah, Marvels, this series of comics was actually my very first owned as a kid. I love the covers. I remember they were made of laminated paper of some kind. I really can't remember what the story was about because as a kid I didn't pay much attention to it, but the art was awesome. And the art <laughs> certainly is awesome. Indeed, indeed. Who else do we got? Slappy. Oh, Slappy. I love the name Slappy. Um, <laughs> another of our regulars said, Marvels was a series that blew me away amidst the 90s. Kill them all. Look at my overly juiced muscles attitude. The fact that a normal human was the main character was relatively unheard of at the time, even in one-shots. It was also my introduction to the art of Alex Ross and the vision to paint these gods and monsters as people. The realism was more surreal than any Neil Gaiman book or Image Comics cover. And, I mean, that's kind of the point. The hyper-realistic art made it feel more immediate, Mm -hmm. but it also led to a huge sense of holy crap. You know, I've I've never looked at it like this. The one shot that strikes me is from the street looking up at Giant Man. Right, as he's peering down over you into the lens. Yeah, Yeah. and Giant Man was always just kind of the big schmuck in the pointy trunks. But in that shot, even in his silly old costume with the antenna, Giant Man is impressive. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Giant Man is impressive. 
he's I mean he's really heroic and it's one of those moments where you realize how unnerving it must be to have you know 50 foot guys running around yeah. or to have wing-footed aliens come out of the sea and 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 declare war on you there are plenty of trade paperbacks of marvels that are out there that you can buy I would Absolutely. love I wish you know uh, Marvel's does their masterworks Marvel masterworks a collection I wish they would do an absolute type edition I mean, they're ripping everything else off from DC. Why not the Absolute Editions? I would love to see Marvels and Ruins and, and maybe this new series all collected into one giant volume. Mm-hmm. Oversized. I call it Marvel at the Ruins of the Eye of the Camera. There you go. I, I, I give If you people have not read Marvels, if you, listeners, if you haven't read Marvels, I say go out and track it down. You will find it a thoroughly enjoyable read. Now, that being said, if you are already bitter on what's going on now... In Marvel, you probably won't like this series because you'll say, oh, well, it's so old. It just doesn't make, you know, all these other things have happened. Yeah, but Marvel's is the reason why you have these things now. Mm-hmm. So I give it a big thumbs up. Rodrigo? Oh, yeah, I definitely recommend it to anyone. Anyone who's already started to get into the Marvel Universe, yeah. um, especially if they want to go back and find, you know, back issues of things, I would say pick up Marvels and pick something out of there that you like and then go research that. Yeah, would it have been better? I mean, you would have had to have done it almost on every page. But I would have liked to have seen something that said, okay, on page five, I think Wizard Magazine did this uh, with mm-hmm. the series. On page five, this fi- this fight between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin took place in 1972's Amazing Spider-Man Fantastic Fantasy Stories. Amazing yeah. Spider-Man 123. That's, that's what it really I need is that companion piece that says, what were all the references? Where are your I references, think, Alex Ross and Kurt Busiek? Where are your references, the, sirs? I think some of the trades have stuff like that. I don't know if it says, uh, if it goes right down to the page, but I know that the situations, because I remember seeing in one of the trades that I picked up at, at one point, um, it actually had like, Here's a shot of the Human Torch bursting out of the glass, right? And then the 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 cover of the book that it comes out of. Yes, and, you know right. it's basically the same shot. Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure there's got to be something like that. I may have it, but I'm pretty sure that Wizard Magazine, back when it was still um, a fairly good a comic publication, book magazine, yeah, <laughs> about comics, uh, had something like that with the fourth and final issue, and they went back and did all the other previous issues. Matthew? Somewhere in between the fart jokes and the Maxim wannabe period, they actually covered comics yeah. for a couple of weeks. It wasn't that bad. Matthew, final thoughts? Yay, nay, thumb up, thumb down on Marvels? This is one of the places where Alex Ross's art is going to be most palatable. For so you. So if, even if you don't care for Alex, as I know I don't, <laughs> you have to take into, you know, you, you go into Marvels and you look at it from a fresh perspective. It's not a starter series. It's not something you want to give to your girlfriend to try and get her into comics. You have to understand a little bit, and to some degree, you have to have a little love for comics. But definitely, I don't know if I'd go so far as thumbs up, but I might say, you know, liver slightly to the left or spleen slightly, you know, <laughs> swollen. Because Marvels is one of those series that are, is going to continue to be talked about. It's like Watchmen. You may not get it. You may not like it, but I highly recommend checking out, if only to see from whence the industry came. It's a signpost of what was happening in 1994. Right. And really, a lot of the stuff in there is indicative of where comics are going now. Right. 
guys like Bendis and Miller and you know all these people are taking into account this parts of this story as now part of the language of the lexicon of comics that they use every month, month in and month out. Mm-hmm. All right, great. And if uh, in words of our of our good friend Brian, uh, if you don't want to go out and buy the trade, go check your local library. I'm sure they have a copy of it floating around. That's more that's than where I first saw it. Yeah. All right. Now next week we are not going to have a regular trade paperback review. Instead, instead we're going to have one of our deep, deep thought provoking conversations on sex mm. and comics. Boing. Boing. <laughs> Now, this is when we talk about sex in comics or sex on comics. Doing the nasty. <laughs> I keep falling off. I'm going to use that joke next week. I promise. Uh, <laughs> when we talk about sex in comics, we're not going to be talking about, you know, the getting it on, although that's probably going to be part of it because uh, Matthew and I have at least one series that we both enjoy that features sex prominently, but also sexual innuendos, sexual portrayals. Not necessarily, we're not going to dive into, uh, you know, uh, gender issues. Gender issues because that's for another show that we're trying to work on, but certainly the idea of sex in comics. How far is too far? How much is too much? Um, What's good and what's bad about sex in comics? That is what we're going to cover on next week's show. So thank you, everybody, for taking the time to listen to our show once again. Don't forget, tell all your friends about the show. Be sure to visit the website at Majorspoilers.com. Friend us over at MySpace, myspace.com slash Majorspoilers. You can Twitter us. Uh, Twitter.com slash major spoilers has not, I don't think that's a sexual thing. Uh, we really do appreciate. <laughs> I hardly know her. <laughs> and Matthew's going to use that joke next week as well. Twitter. <laughs> so everybody much. else did. We really, really appreciate all you those Twitter, positive comments Potter. over at iTunes and Podcast Alley. If you have any comments, Who's topic gold? ideas. I hardly know her. Hey, gold. I got to tell you, Phil Askew sent us a topic idea for a future show that really rocks. I like it. Uh, we may have to do a little bit more nice. research. Like but it's it. certainly a good conversation. But if you have any topic ideas for future shows, if you'd like to be on the show, if you're a comic creator, artist, editor, uh, somebody that just recently got laid off by a, a big company, you're more than welcome to contact us, maybe be on the show. Our email address is podcast at majorspoilers.com. So until next time, we know that you love comics, and we do too, and we will see you next time. Fat Dick's revision of Superman I could save a few bucks and stand around And read through the covers of the comics on the stand But although every other page would be backwards I suppose I could still read the evens and the odds Well I don't know Guess I haven't thought this all the way through Plus as soon as the comic book store guy knew He kicked my butt out on the corner What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Think about a better way If I was hulking green or gray I could just bust through that brick wall Take their comic books away But then the little meat would deal With all the tanks and bombs and guns Have you ever tried to read a series With all that going on Guess I need to rethink this plan How would I back and board my comics With such huge hands Guess I already told ya What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah what a major spoiler What a major spoiler 
I'm star raving rich like a man of iron. I might not be surprised to find that I might actually have the heart cold to follow an entire storyline. Would I really even need to read up on all those escapades? I mean, who needs such distractions when your sister's such a babe? But the downside is such a beast. Being shot up in a fun bee in the Middle East with a King Santo and soldier. What a major spoiler! What a major spoiler! Yeah, yeah, yeah! What a major spoiler! Whoa, 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 whoa! What a major spoiler! Major Spoilers Podcast is copyright 2008. <laughs> hey, Rodrigo. What's up? Knock, knock. Who's there? Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise who? Mayonnaise have seen the glory of the... <laughs> Never. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? Impatient cow. Impatient cow who? <laughs> who, does a frog, who does a frog call when he breaks down? I don't know. A toad truck. <laughs> <laughs>